Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potch, cause I'm not Julius son, not anymore. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Potch, cause I'm not Julius son like I was before. And did I read that The Simpsons is not a union show either? It is now. Oh, that it is, is now. Why, okay. No, that is why I left. Yeah, exactly. That's what I read, that that's why you left the show. Because I of... left the show after the first year, the first season. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but because they won Emmys in their first season, and I was part of that, and I was proud of that, um, they got a lot more cash from Gracie and Fox. Gracie and, and Fox are their production companies at the time. Uh, they got a cash infusion, which they could easily through that have afforded to put their crew union, but they didn't. Um, Gabor Chupo ran Klasky Chupo Studios at the time. That was the production studio that we were doing the show in. And he didn't believe in unions. And I was surprised that Matt Groening wasn't even supporting our going union at the time. So I thought, well, <laughs> freaking hip hypocrisy is this. And I got an offer to go work on Fern Gully because I was now about to be vested after 10 years. I was 10 years in the industry at the time or 11. And, you know, I'm in my thirties and, you know, I'm thinking, I think a little more clearly than the 22 year olds that are working with me on the Simpsons who still insisted at that time, we don't need the union. We're going to live forever. We're immortal. Well, guess what? The Simpsons continued to be successful. They switched studios. They went to film Roman studio. They had a 401k. They were being produced in the same studio that King of the Hill was, but nobody there had union benefits. And all of a sudden, Mark, they're 40. They're not 22 anymore. They've been with the show forever. They've been with both shows, the crews on both shows, but specifically the Simpsons thought, you know, after 16 years and we're, you know, in our thirties and forties, we're having kids. We're not, we are not, you know, immortal. <laughs> We need these benefits, we need a future. So that's when they signed representation cards to go union in the 16th season, okay? Hmm. If there, that was 16 years ago, Mark. Had I stayed with that show, I would not have accrued my union benefits to retire at this age. Hmm. So uh, I made a smart decision to leave, to go work on Fern Gully, which was fully union, and I loved the show, but I was stepping back. I was stepping from layout in The Simpsons, I, I had a pretty good job on that. I was doing character layouts, which is taking the storyboards into the animation phase and setting it up on a background. It was still done kind of old school. Um, Fern Gully, I left, but I was made a key assistant animator. So again, I was doing assistant animation, cleaning up the animation, which was great, more tedious, but a great, great production company, great crew and good pay and union. So I was glad ultimately that I made the decision to leave the Simpsons because of my union status. I don't regret it to this day. What kind of uh, incentives or pressure can, can creatives put on production companies to go union? I mean, I would guess hardly anyone would be union if they could get away with it. So what kind of pressure can people put on these, these companies to, to be union? You can't wildcat strike. Um, you kind of have to, um, people go on strike and I've been involved in two strikes. There was the great strike of 79 and then there was another one in 82. In 1979, the Hanna-Barbera, the TV store, the TV stories, the TV, the TV studios uh, like Hanna-Barbera, Filmation, uh, Warner, the rest 
went on strike because of runaway production. Our work was going to be sent to Korea, to the Philippines, to Taiwan, to God knows where, to make it cheaper. And we went on strike and they didn't think we would do it, but we did. And we sort of caught them unawares um, and we kind of held up their production. So that worked. Mm -hmm. But three years later, we had to go on strike again to keep the runaway clause that we had won to keep that into the union contract. We had to go on strike again. Now this time the studios knew that we'd have to go on strike to keep that clause. So they were fully prepared. They had studio facilities outside the jurisdiction all set up. So we, our leverage was much less. So we lost the second strike, uh, which meant that more work was going overseas. Mm. So it was at that point that I decided that, you know, I'll do assistant animation for as long as I can for whatever stays in town. And then I will look forward, which I did. I got into layout. I got into backgrounds for a while. And then I sort of tried to move myself up because you have to stay above the waterline. You know what I mean? It's just amazing <laughs> that these companies, I mean, artists are just trying to make a, a decent living. <laughs> And, you know, whether it's Amazon or whoever, um, these people that have so much still want to put the squeeze on. Well, you know, we are in some cases, because I come from that union background, so I kind of see it from that angle. But again, we have always been seen as risks and as necessary evils, hmm. you know, uh, you know, they, they love us because we're making money for them. Mm -hmm. But if you're a necessary evil, you're also one to be kept an eye on because we shouldn't become too powerful. Hmm. But in a union, you do have a certain amount of power and you do ha you have to be very cognizant of your leverage. Once the more tedious work did go overseas, then you know crews were narrowed down to pre-production creative. Great, okay. We had value because our part of the of the, of the um, production chain could not be successfully exported. They tried, they tried everything they could to send storyboards out to the Philippines and to everywhere, but there were cultural barriers. It just didn't work. So they had to then placate the artists that essentially wanted more. And those were in the States. We did have a lot of wonderful international artists coming to the States from the Philippines, from Spain, from various places where they were getting paid crap Okay, because that's what happens. They came to the States and they did very well because they had the talent, but they were being exploited and they knew it. So mm. they came to us, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was pretty interesting. Mm. But to answer your question, you need to know what the production schedules are and how the leverage works. Mm. And it's different now because we don't have, we don't have Saturday morning TV seasons to worry about. We don't have the TV lineup. Everything is streaming. So you don't have a schedule in the same way. Hmm. You know, you have things that drop on a certain schedule, but it's always archived. So it's, um, I don't know exactly how they're using their leverage these days, mm -hmm. but I know that it was a really tough slog to try to get streaming stuff that is delivered by streaming to get that into the union contract because it was not it was not necessarily a platform that was represented in our contract and they and the producers were all over it mm -hmm. and they were screwing people left and right 
So now that is becoming more and more front and center and that's getting resolved. And we've got a very powerful union now with a lot of young people in it. Thank God. That was one of the last speeches I ever made before I left that union, before I retired. And I said, if anything, get the young people in here mm-hmm. because they're the future. And um, I did have some, a bit of a platform and they did listen. And I was actually reelected to my post eight times. So for whatever value I had, I'm glad that people listened, you know, because I served 24 years. I, I was reelected eight times. I had to retire out of my post. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was kind of not proud of it, but kind of proud of it. You it's know? something to be proud of. Definitely. Yeah. Has any uh, uh, roadway been made as far as uh, the video games and stuff? I know you would brought um, that up. Yeah. I don't know exactly, to be honest. I am not in that element or I'm not in that side of it. Mm-hmm. But I know that there are ongoing efforts to organize what they can because there, again, there is such opportunity for exploitation. Mm-hmm. And again, they know full well that it's an area where people are going to gravitate to for opportunity and they will take any terms. Now, get this. You're probably familiar with, and you know, you live in the LA area, right? You've probably seen these uh, art associates colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're called our associates in art. Is that what they're called? Anyway, there were, um, there are strings of these for-profit colleges. All right. Uh, I don't know what other ones necessarily, but suddenly they're all offering highly salubrious careers in animation. Hmm. Um, but you know what they really are? And I'm, I'm sure most, uh, you might be aware of this. They're lending mills for Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. They basically are there to set up huge student loans mm-hmm. and to get these kids that are completely unqualified to be trained in animation, to get them caught up in enormous student loan commitments. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot, I believe, of borderline criminality uh, involved in trying to get people into animation through these schools. I've known people that have taught at these schools mm-hmm. that said, these are just scams. To, mm-hmm. to get people to pay to, uh, huge student loans, you know? Um, so there is that. So you have that element trying to crowd kids into schools, but it doesn't necessarily get them into studios. And that's the thing. And they're promising these kids jobs that start at God knows hundred a year. What? That's unheard of. No, no, no. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. But these kids will come in quite happily and commit themselves to insane insane student loans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sounds like a trump university or something um <laughs> you might have uh i think we touched on this we might have anyway what what is the role of it what is the role of an assistant animator and and how does one get work for themselves as an assistant animator people really don't do assistant animation anymore that's what's oh. so funny it's kind of that eventually went away too mm-hmm. um we're talking a role that is essentially part of the traditional animation process. So when an animator uh, animates a scene, he's doing it in a kind of a, he's drawing it very rough in a kind of a flip book order. So you've got pages on your pegboard with a light behind and you're flipping these drawings in order. If you take the entire scene that the animator is animated you can lift it up and flip the whole thing and you will see a sequence of action and it will make sense, right? My job, um, 
was to take those very rough drawings, sometimes they were cleaner than others, and produce line work on a separate drawing over that drawing to make it look as perfect as possible. And when you're a key assistant animator, you're taking every key drawing, maybe every one, every 12 drawings, and a 12, it's a 12 drawing foot, a foot of film. Um, so every 12 frames. But what was interesting to me is that when you have to do that, it's super hard actually. You can have a drawing done by an animator that is so off model. In other words, the proportions are off and everything's wrong, but the action is excellent. So my job was to make that character look spot on like the original design and maintain what the animator intended in terms of the movement without destroying the model of the character. So it was challenging, very physically tedious because you were just focused. And um, this is why animators' postures are terrible because you're like, you're, you're punched over this drawing board. Um, as we got older and we got into more digital practices, we, we lifted up our desks, we got our very desk, we did standing desks and we could stand at a computerized situation. But in the old days, we were hunched over, <laughs> drawing and getting dirty. And mm. it, it, but again, that's essentially what assistant animation is. You are presenting clean drawings. Then that assistant animation will be handed down to what is known as a breakdown artist. And then they will hand it off to an in-betweener. So not the same person is doing all the drawings. You're handing it down to a different level of artists. So they work behind you. Mm -hmm. because the amount of drawings involved, Mark, it's insane. It's hundreds of thousands of, mm. in one feature. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Mm. So I would try to make the initial drawings in each scene that I got, try to look as consistent and perfect. Plus you have to do a beautiful line quality too, because in the old, old days, that would be traced over with by an inker in the Disney days, you know, in the days of this kind of show. Mm -hmm. But later on, in the Hanna-Barbera era, uh, in the very late Disney era, the first era to use Xerox, the first feature to use Xerox was actually, um, late, uh, I'm sorry, it was 101 Dalmatians. So that was probably just before you were born. Mm -hmm. But that's how long they've been actually using Xerox in animation to avoid the painstaking in inking process where every drawing had to be inked onto the cell. And then that would be turned over and colored. So um, yeah, we uh, did the assistant animation so that later on, if it had to be Xeroxed, it would also Xerox perfectly and consistently. Can so, you explain the design process? The design process, I did some of that. Again, that you are, when I was at Filmation where they, you know, they did various, uh, various TV shows you might've heard of. We did a gold, we did a Ghostbusters, we did He-Man, She-Ra, we did all that stuff, right? Um, and sometimes I was on the design crew for that. And they would essentially, I was designing props for a while and they would just give you a list of props. Like, I don't know what a flamethrower looks like. I have to design a flamethrower. Mm -hmm. We didn't have internet. I had to go look for pictures of flamethrower in whatever library books they had lying around. And even then, you know, couldn't find it. So guess what? You got in your car and you went to the library to look for reference, you know? That was what that was like in the, in the early to mid eighties for me. 
And I thought, this is too much trouble. I mean, I'm not even meeting deadlines because they're not giving me reference. So I screw that. I'll do, um, I'll do some character design work instead, which I could actually stay in my desk for. And that was for She-Ra, uh, He-Man and She-Ra, um, mostly She-Ra. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but um, I did background uh, cleanup actually for He-Man and that was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, it was uh, the design process for characters. It goes by committee. You come up with something. If they like it, it goes through. And if it doesn't, you have to change it. It doesn't have a change crew. So they'll go over it like the director or your senior artist who's assigning you might make some suggestions and you just go back over it, you know. But um, you do get a list of things you're supposed to design and do and you're supposed to do it within a certain amount of time. So it's fun, but it's, it's, it can be arduous, at least in those days. It's a whole different process now because it's all done digitally. But in those days, it was a lot. <laughs> As you've mentioned, uh, what, you, what the work you, you do is largely collaborative. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you deal with it when you're working with someone whose personality or work style is just very different than, than yours? Um, well, as a revisionist, I wasn't really dealing with peers because they were doing their own efficiency. Um, so the collaborative part, you would really have to work well with your director, um, you know, and, and everybody has a part to play. Sometimes it's pretty specific and sometimes it is more isolated because you have that one task and nobody's going to really interfere with it. But, you know, I, for instance, had worked on a scene on the 7D, which had been approved. And when, when your work is approved in the digital era, you're putting it in a file in a server and that is approved. You're putting it in the approved file. That's gonna go into the final, it's gonna go into the animatic cut, which is their build of the show as it progresses through the different stages. So part of that animatic will have rough drawings in it, part of it'll have finished footage but you're going, you're putting your finished stuff into a file. Well, something happened when I was working on this. I'll give you an example. One of my fellow artists who I adore just hadn't learned the protocol of what you don't do. He was quite young. And he noticed that a scene that I had done that was in the same sequence that he was working on had been approved by the directors. And so we had dropped it. I had dropped it into the right file, but it was on the server. And he had access to that server and he thought he could improve what I did. Mm. No, 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 no. Not if it's, I mean, if he wanted to talk to me about it before it was approved by the directors, that's one thing. But I had met the deadline and this was going into the show. This was in the file for the animatic. He went and pulled it out and messed with it. It's like, no, no, this is what gets you fired. And not because you're offending me, your fellow artist, but you're, you're messing with- um, Protocol. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're messing with it on so many levels, I can't even begin to tell you. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you don't, one doesn't work well with, but you have to understand that young people, you know, they didn't really, or at least at that time, didn't quite get the protocol of what you do and don't do. And as I said, I would have been open to suggestions had he had those suggestions before the fact. I wouldn't have been happy about it since he's half my age, but I would have listened, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but yeah that kind of thing can happen because now you're dealing with a server and anybody has access to what you put in there um but you know it's time stamped you don't want to mess with that somebody's going to find out 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So um, there's just different protocols uh, demanded of different types of production, especially now with all this advancement in technology. You have to be very careful. Uh, you have to be courteous. You have to be, you should be kind. A lot of people aren't. Uh, I got beat up a lot by, emotionally and mentally by uh, directors, unfortunately, mm. one or two, two specifically in the last uh, 15 years, who, because I was an older woman in not the highest position uh, in the food chain, um, was easiest to take stuff out on when they made mistakes. And it happened twice. And I was able to, uh, I caught one of them on iChat and I archived it. I caught them lying. So I kept my job there. But no, you have to protect your ass. You have to cover your ass, unfortunately, especially if you're older. Mm-hmm. So that's not something I expected to throw in there, but it did happen. Um, it gets more challenging as you get older, even if you know what you're doing. <laughs> Motion capture versus animation, if you can explain the difference in which one you prefer. Um, I've never been involved with motion capture. Um, it's interesting. Have you seen uh, what's coming out with uh, that that band ABBA from many, many years ago when you the were Swedish, like- Swedish band ABBA? Yeah. They are in their 70s. Hmm. And they're doing a whole comeback with a new album. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I haven't seen it or heard it. Mm-hmm. But the, but the visuals to go along with it will be a virtual concert where they are being re- replicated as younger versions of themselves in motion capture. Hmm. And that's like, I don't know, hmm. you know? Um, motion capture is, I think, I don't know a lot about it. All I know is that that can be used extremely effectively in all kinds of digital production but it is not necessarily animation, you know? Uh, it's, it's what they might use in what looks like very live action, you know, stuff to reproduce a younger version of somebody or to, <sighs> to me, it's not animation, but it's valid. You know, does that make sense? It's not animation because I think of animation as something more old school, mm-hmm. um, but they did something 90 years ago that you might've heard of called rotoscope. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were animating uh, uh, Snow White, for instance, mm-hmm. March Champion did dances, you know, with with the dwarves, which I think were children or something. I don't know, in, in uh, on live action camera, and then those frames were made black and white stats out of, and then they were animated on top of, because that's how they replicated really, really good live action footage for Snow White, and that's 1937. Mm-hmm. You know, so they've been using rotoscope um, from there up until probably through Ralph Bakshi's stuff in the, in the 70s and 80s. Rotoscope was very popular. So live action has been literally used and transformed in its original state and transformed into drawings. So if that can be considered valid all those years ago, I don't see anything really wrong with motion capture, but I don't think of it as animation. I think of it as a tool to realize something visual that otherwise wouldn't have been able to be done. Mm-hmm. What is rigging? In 3D, you get what they call a Jesus model. Basically, it's the character just standing there with its arms out. It's the basic character. It's not posed. It doesn't have personality. You have a character that is simply the elements of the design. Kind of like a template? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
when you get that, and I don't even know if an animal version exists or whatever, because I'm sure they've got all kinds of models for things for, that have been done over time. I only took one 3D class, so I'm telling you what I remember, but rigging is taking those parts and applying, applying innards that you can actually animate. In other words, it's very easy to rig something wrong. You put the wrong bones inside that model, the animator gets it and the arm will fall off. Because hmm. he can't, he can't, he can't manipulate it because you have to rig it mechanically so that you can move it. You understand? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The rigger will put the bones inside of that model. Hmm. And if that is not literally engineered to move in a 3D way that is natural, it'll twist unnaturally, it'll look awful, and you can have body parts falling off because you didn't rig it right. Mm -hmm. So that's my understanding of rigging. You are literally putting in the interior infrastructure for animation into that body that you have imported as a design. So you're giving it that layer of movability. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's what my understanding of rigging is. Although I did, never did it, I've seen it done. I've seen it done badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, holy crap, this huh. is hard. But when pe once people know what they're doing in it and they have a rigging crew just assigned for that, it's pretty mm -hmm. amazing hmm. what they can do. When you were working in the business, what software did you most use and what software is out there today that most excites you? Well, what I used, the software that I used, the only software that I used towards the end of my career in Storyboard was Storyboard Pro. And uh, I thought it was a great, pro excuse me, a great program. Um, I learned, it's called, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to learn and it's fairly deep. You can do it in Photoshop too, but I never learned it in Photoshop. But essentially Storyboard Pro is a storyboarding program that organizes all your drawings for you. You have different drawing surfaces. It's all computerized. So what I would do is I would draw into a monitor known as Cintiq. So you have your basic computer with your essential monitor to your left if you're right-handed. And then in front of you, you have this big monitor that you can also use as a desktop, but you, this is the one that you're going to use with the Storyboard Pro program. And there it's going to bring up your, your drawing field and your thumbnails, your sequence of your storyboard drawings. So it's very efficient. It's really good because you have brushes and colors. You have all kinds of things to work with. Um, it's very self-contained. It has been uh, at least to my knowledge, because I've been out of it for three, four years now. It's the um, it's a state of the art program for storyboarding, uh, at least in my experience. Huh. I wonder what the 2021 version is. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I have the 2016 version in my computer and I think it's not even working anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, story, I, I don't even know what number I've got, but I've never I've never updated it. There's never really been a reason to. But uh, yeah, it's it makes it makes it easy. Um, you can then import from it. it. It's very workable that way. You can import stuff from other programs if you want to. Like like it'll work with Photoshop. It'll work with Flash. It'll work with different programs, so that you can combine things from different programs for a final product. It's it's very impressive. So that's the only program I actually worked directly with and got to know. What were your favorite cartoons growing up? And what was it that attracted you to those shows? Gosh, growing up, my God. Well, the first 
the first feature I saw in a theater that was animated was first run because I was a little kid and it was it was um, 101 Dalmatians. Mm -hmm. I think it was 61 or 62. I think I was six, but five or six, but I was just enthralled and I just wanted to keep going back and seeing that movie. I just loved it so much. That was my first cinematic memory of animation. Did that kind of spark, a, a spark in you to become an animator oh. too, or was it still later? No, I, I didn't. I didn't dream of it. I didn't even think of it. Uh, not until much later, until, until when I was in college or after college, my mom said, why don't you take a training program at Hanna-Barbera? Because I had no idea what I was going to do with my art degree, since I figured being a courtroom illustrator was going to be too rough a road to hoe um, in terms of getting work. I only did one or two cases for a newspaper, and that was 30 bucks a day. I was like, that wasn't going to pay. So, um, and that's in 77. So um, no, I uh, was enthralled by a lot of stuff I saw. I was charmed, even as a young child, I knew that the writing uh, for the J word, like fractured fairy tales, and, and uh, it was sophisticated, but it was fun and you got it and you laughed, right? Um, I love the old Hanna-Barbera shows. They were not necessarily perfectly drawn and they were definitely what they call limited animation which I would eventually work there so I would know exactly that definition. Um, but Huckleberry Hound and Quick Draw and Fred and the Flintstones, it was just great stuff to me. It was limited animation. I knew from an early age the difference between that and a beautiful Disney feature. I knew that their levels of ambition were completely different. I knew that, you, you could tell. But um, as I got into the studio and knew more about how these things were produced, it was a whole different ball of wax because the quality of what we were doing at Hanna-Barbera, I think, was considerably inferior to the early Hanna-Barbera stuff, um, really. And it was still very limited, but they were trying to put too much into the physical look of it at Hanna-Barbera when I was there. Um, they had over-designed the superheroes, for instance, and not everybody could draw that well at the speed at which they expected it to be produced. So I think it came out looking sloppier. You know, I really do. Mm -hmm. um, but it was accepted and it got on TV and people enjoyed it. And I look at it now and it doesn't really hold up that well. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people think the sun rises and sets on me because I worked on EMAC. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all thought it was fun to work on and we love working with each other, but we thought it was crap. You know, we had no idea that 40 years later, anybody would give a damn about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we did our best, but there was so much footage demanded out of us or so much work demanded out of us because it had to be done on a schedule. And it was, um, it was hard, it was hard work. Mm 